Okay, we have a couple of announcements to remind everybody about. First of all, the uh, annual church picnic is going to be on Saturday, April the 7th, which is uh, a little over about 10 or 12 days. So uh, mark your calendars. There will be sign-up sheets out of the fellowship hall. They may have already been put up, and uh, we need to sign up. So who's going to bring what? Then on um, April the 15th, which is a little over a week after that, there's the annual March of Remembrance, which is on uh, to, it's a commemoration, remembrance of the Holocaust, and the purpose of these uh, Marches of Remembrance is uh, to bring to people's attention the horrors and dangers of anti-Semitism. And I think it's appropriate for Christians to show their support for our Jewish friends and it's a great opportunity to build bridges, uh, especially from the evangelical community, because uh, for too much of the time since World War II, there hasn't been much of a ro- much of a response from the um, evangelical community. Third thing is we have the Museum of the Bible trip. Some of y'all are going. Some of you who are watching are going. And if you have signed up, we sent out an email. Uh, People need to check off the boxes. There's a cost of $12 a person. That covers all three days. And we need you to fill that out and send in your checks within the next seven days as quickly as possible. Check off what uh, just a couple of those tours that the museum offers and to get that in so that everything can be properly uh, arranged. So um, if you wait then they may not have those tours available and you'll have some missed opportunities. So uh, please be uh, aware of that and get those in responsibly and quickly. Also, the Israel trip is still open, but that too is drawing to a close. We have a good group that's going already, so if you are waiting, sitting on the fence, now's your time to make a decision. Scripture says that we come together in order to focus upon God. And there is a right way and a wrong way, as we'll see in this lesson tonight, that God is very specific about how he should be worshipped and is particularly, particularly emphasizes his holiness. And God is holy. That means he is unique. He is distinct. And one of the ways in which he is distinct is that he is perfectly righteous and perfectly just, and therefore he cannot have fellowship with any creature that is not perfectly righteous. Since man has fallen, we cannot have fellowship with God apart from Jesus Christ, the possession of Jesus Christ's righteousness, which comes by faith alone in Christ alone. So when we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and we have his imputed righteousness, we still, we still sin. So it's important to make sure that we are regular, regularly cleansed from sin and forgiven of all unrighteousness. So we have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a joy to be able to get into your word and to study what you've revealed to us and to come to a complete understanding of these texts and what they mean and their significance for us. And as we study over and over, we continue to learn and the Holy Spirit continues to teach us. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that we might gain a greater appreciation 
for who you are, your plan, uh, your protocols for our lives, and how important that is in our spiritual life, not something we can make up on our own or come uh, develop on our own. It's not based on our character or our feeling. It's based upon your eternal character of righteousness and the protocols that you have laid down in Scripture. Help us to understand these things as we study this evening in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're jumping from 1 Samuel 5 to 1 Samuel 6. And this is a great chapter. This is where David moves the ark into uh, Jerusalem. And it's an interesting story. It's also a story that raises questions with, uh, with people because of what happens along the way. And people wonder, how can God be a just God? Well, it is because he is a just God that these things happen, because he has... Uh, he has set forth what is necessary for his creatures to worship him according to his standards and his character. His righteousness is the uh, standard of his character. His justice is the application of that standard. And so it is, it is vital for us to conform to his righteousness, to adjust to his righteousness. And, and uh, as sinners, the only way we can adjust to his righteousness is by faith alone in Christ alone then after that we worship him now in the old testament they had one pattern and style of worship and in the new testament Jesus recognizes that shift when he's talking to the woman at the well and says time is coming when we will not worship in one location meaning the temple now the temple was important because at the heart of the temple was the holy of holies and at the heart of the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant and the ark of the covenant was uh, constructed according to God's specific instructions. And on top of the ark, as we studied Sunday morning, there is the what's called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat has two uh, cherubs. It is made of solid gold. And this is where God is said to be enthroned. Uh, he it dwells or he is enthroned between the cherubs. So what we see as we come into this section is the importance of this movement of the ark from where it has been for uh, approximately 90 years, and now it is coming into, uh, or, uh, excuse me, 60 years, and now it is coming into uh, Jerusalem where, again, it will be put on hold until Solomon comes along to construct uh, to construct the temple. What we've seen, I'll review this every time, three sections to Second Samuel, Second Samuel 2 through 10. David, God blesses David, and he expands and unites the kingdom. Then David sins in chapters 11 to 20. We have God's discipline on David, which shows that David isn't some super spiritual uh, saint uh, believer, that he is subject to the same sins that we are, just as James in the New Testament talks about Elijah as being a man of like nature as we are. So they, they have the same problems, which is sin. That's the ongoing problem. God, though, in his grace will transform the cursing of judgment or cursing of discipline on David into blessing. And then in the last part of Second Samuel, there are these sections dealing with 
uh, six different episodes that show the greatness of the Davidic covenant. We're still in the first section. We are in chapter 6 now. In chapter 2 through 4, we see the beginning of David's kingdom when he's reigning from Hebron over basically the tribe of Judah, but also Simeon is sort of assimilating into the tribe of Judah. Then in chapter 5, we saw how God is blessing David to expand the kingdom so that he unites the 12 tribes. The uh, revolt uh, by Ishbosheth and Abner is finally put down. And then as David secures the nation, he captures the capital city of Jebus, which is the Canaanite name for Jerusalem. And this is a spiritual center. I went through this the last time talking about the history of Jerusalem. It is the spiritual center. It is where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and where God provided a substitute. It is uh, the place where God has set his heart, as we've seen in many, many passages. He loves Zion. He loves Jerusalem. He has a plan and a purpose for Jerusalem. And so this is to be the capital for the nation, God's people that David has has provided. So David secures control over Jerusalem, and then he begins to expand the um, security, the military security of the nation, and he has a couple of battles with the Philistines, and he pushes them back. And if you look at at chapter 5, what we read in chapter 5 is that the Philistines are, are pushed back, and they're pushed back as far as, let me see, I'm trying to find the verse right now, uh, as far as Geba, um, and this is important to understand uh, what God is doing here in giving the land, the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to David. That is uh, setting up that, um, that distinction. And so um, I can't seem to put my eyes right on that verse, but we'll get there in a minute anyway. So that is where this, this stops um, no, I'm looking everywhere else but in verse 25 and David did so as the Lord commanded him and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer now we'll look at that map in a minute but what's important about that is as David extends his territorial control out from Jerusalem we are going to see that that this puts him in a position where he can move the ark from Kiriath-Jerim, which is about eight miles from uh, Jerusalem, all, and he can move the ark into Jerusalem where, where not only will it be centered there, the God's presence will be centered there as a source of blessing for David and for the nation, but also because it will be the... If this is the capital... This is the throne. This is the capital city. Is where the throne of the king is located, and David is the human king. But the ultimate king of Israel is God, and His throne will be in Jerusalem as well on on the Temple Mount. So we'll see God being enthroned in Jerusalem. I'm 
try to outline in such a way that we're emphasizing what God is doing and not what man is doing, because in the Old Testament, God's the hero. God's the one who's moving things. It's all about God. It's not it's only secondarily about Abraham, Isaac, Moses, David, uh, whomever. It is primarily about what God is doing in human history. So this is not simply David moves the ark. It is that God now is enthroned in Jerusalem, and his presence will be there until he takes the southern kingdom under divine discipline at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and Ezekiel will see the vision of the presence of God the Shekinah departing from the temple, going to the front front entry to the temple, to the gate of the Temple Mount, and across the Kidron to the Mount of Olives, and then ascending into heaven. So we begin in verse 1 by reading that again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. Now, I took that translation from the NASB because the New King James just says dwells, but enthroned is a better, uh, better translation of the word there. So, What we see here, we'll come back to this verse in a little while, is David is going to gather together a mighty group of the military. And why is he doing that? Because it's honoring the king. It's just like today when you look at at what took place at times in World War II, at the end of World War II, at the end of of, uh, other wars before, there would be these great parades that would take place uh, in New York and in other cities as the, as the men came home. And w- there were military parades for other reasons. We still have them at Veterans Day and Memorial Day and things of that nature. But so he's bringing the army together because this is a high function of the Israeli, the Israelite state. And it, it shows that there is a role for pomp and circumstance. I want you to get out of your mind some smaller idea of what's going on here. This involves a tremendous number of people. It is like uh, thinking through the state funeral of, for example, Ronald Reagan and all that was involved in the planning and all of the music that was involved and all of the the details that are planned down to the finest, finest minutia and all of the uh, music that is rehearsed and all of the musicians and the vocalists and all of the speeches, all of that is all orchestrated and timed. It's that kind of thing. This isn't some sort of impromptu, hey, let's get together and go move the Ark of the Covenant into, into Jerusalem. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? Uh, no, that's not what's going on here. The Bible emphasizes the grandeur and the greatness of God. We live in a world today that is focusing downward. We're getting our fashion statements out of out of the ghetto and for, from those in the lower socioeconomic strata, and we're not getting them from upper classes. I think it was uh, Toynbee, if not Toynbee, it was Spengler, but one of those historians uh, in his history of Western civilization 
made the observation that when uh, nations are in and cultures are in the ascendancy, when people are seeking to build and to grow and to develop, then the lower classes and the middle classes look to the upper classes, the aristocracy, to set standards for dress and behavior and manners and all of that. But when a culture is in the descent, when it is in decline, when it is headed towards self-destruction, the upper classes imitate the lower classes. And we, we see that if you go back to the 19th century, you can see that in many different ways. You can see uh, often images. You watch some show on Masterpiece Theater describing something in the Victorian era, and you see how even the the poorer folks on the street, the, the women would wear gloves tattered with holes, but they're trying to dress up. I remember when I was young, um, my mother would go shopping, and a lady in the 50s, even as late as the 50s, would never go shopping without having on gloves and a hat and dressing up. You wouldn't get on an airplane in anything less than a coat and tie. And now we just wear anything. And, of course, the security system has pretty much uh, forced us into being as relaxed and casual and metal-free as possible, not belts or anything else. And it's all gotten very, very sloppy. But... What we've seen historically is that people used to dress up. You'd look at pictures, uh, some of the pictures that were taken on cattle ranches in the West during the 1800s, and you see these cowboys out in the field, and they don't look like these cowboys in some Sam Peckinpah movie, but they look more like um, they they had on a coat and tie. It may be dirty and it may be dusty, but they dressed up because this is what shows respect to other people. You, you respect them, so you're going to uh, dress appropriately. I know I'm fighting a losing battle because I'm one of the few uh, pastors left in America that still tries to still wears a coat and tie on Sunday morning, and I wear a tie most of the time during the week because of the the significance of what I am doing. This we're handling the Word of God. And uh, this isn't something that's legalistic. It is just something that, that shows respect and honor. But we've lost that in, in our society. So people get up and they wear just whatever they want to on Sunday morning. I'm often reminded when I talk about that of episode where a longtime dear friend and co-author, who I won't mention his name right now, but he came back to Texas from Virginia about maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and he went to some large Baptist church where his mother was attending, and he wore a coat and tie, and the pastor was there in just in like a T-shirt and blue jeans, and he sat on the front row with his arms folded and glared at the pastor through the whole message. I don't know that that's the appropriate response, but but that's what's happened today. It's gotten rather rather pathetic, and so. What we see here, though, is the elevation, the honor, the respect that is due to God who is enthroned among the, the cherubs. So I want you to notice here the, that at this time, the title that is given to the Ark and God, it is the Ark of Elohim, which is called by the name Hashem. Often today you'll hear Jews 
instead of reading the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah or something like that, they will just say Hashem. Others will say Adonai. So he's called by the name, the very name of Yahweh Tzabaoth, the Lord of the armies. That usually refers to the armies of the angels, who is enthroned above the cherubs. This is his dwelling place. So where's this place called Baala Judah? This is Baala would refer to an ancient name. Probably there was a worship of Baal there at one point. And Judah would indicate the location. This is like uh, like Paris, Texas or uh, Paris, Tennessee. Uh, so it's not Paris, France. Okay, so Judah is indicating this is Baala in Judah in the tribal area of Judah. Now, here's a map to show you the location here. I have three circles around these three areas. Uh, this is Jebus, or Jerusalem, which is about 35 miles from the Dead Sea here. And then from Jebus to uh, Kiriath-Jerim is, according to the uh, atlas, is about eight miles. And so it would be about the same to Gezer. You know, Israel's really small. So it looks like, oh, that could be really large, but those are very close uh, distances. So Gezer is still, uh, will eventually be under Israel's uh, control, but this is, he's, what David does is he pushes back Philistine control. They have taken over much of the uh, northern area since the defeat of Saul, and so now he is regaining uh, Israelite territory. And once he does that, he is going to be able to move the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. So we're going to stop to give some context to this and look at the history of the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25:22, we read, And there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Well, we see here, it's a couple of things to point out, that the upper um, cover of the ark of the covenant is called the mercy seat, the keferet in Hebrew, which is where cleansing takes place on the day of atonement every year, as I talked about Sunday morning. Above that, you see the cherubs. They are made of one piece of gold, and their wings touch, and then it is there between the cherubs that the uh, presence of God is, and from there he would speak to Moses. I didn't know how this would show up. It may not show up at all, but this is a little infographic that uh, Lagos has put together. I don't think it shows up very well. I can read it if you can't read it. Uh, the ark is made of acacia wood with a pure gold overlay. Now, acacia wood is a very dense wood. It is not susceptible to rotting or to uh, insects penetrating it, and so it's a great picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ that was impervious to sin. It is made of gold, which pictures his deity. Its measurements are four and a half feet long, uh, two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high, according to Exodus 25.10. So it is a box, and inside the box, uh, there is uh, the, the, the broken 
uh, Ten Commandments. Why? The Ten Commandments are the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and so it is called the Ark of the Covenant because what's in the box is the broken covenant. It's the, uh, which is the uh, testimony of the Lord. That's this second panel here. Um, the testimony of the Lord written on two stone tablets given to Moses were the only items inside the ark according to 1 Kings 8 9. The ark, the second panel, is a symbol of the presence and the glory of God. And then some other names for it down here are the ark of God, 1 Samuel 4 21 and 22, the ark of God's strength in Psalm 132 8, and the ark of the testimony in Exodus 30 verse 6. Now, if this is the presence of God, and that God's presence is here and he dwells here, then this is a phenomenal piece of furniture. It is the throne of God on the earth, and therefore it must be treated with respect. And God defines precisely how this should be treated. A lot of people approach the spiritual life as well, as long as it means something to me. And I'm going to conduct things as long as as I feel like it it's worshipful and brings me close to God. And the whole center of contemporary worship is on me and what my encounter with God does for me. And that is so far removed from what we see in the scriptures. That's why a lot of people can't understand what why God does what he does, is because they're so me-centered their contemporary Christian music, their choruses are, are not biblical. They're not God-focused. They're me-focused. Uh, the whole worship setting is all about the individual and promoting uh, self-worship, and it's a form of self-idolatry, and thus it's apostasy. Uh, but what we see here is something that is totally focused on God. And it's even difficult for David to understand because of what happens to Uzzah in the middle of this, and David becomes angry. And, And that just shows that as human beings, we don't quite comprehend God. We can't control him. We can't manipulate him. He is, he is beyond our, our understanding. So God is going to set out certain standards for how the ark is transported. And part of it is based on these poles that are there. The poles are the means by which the ark is to be carried by the priest. No one else is to carry it. So we have passages such as Numbers 4, 5, and 6, where God says when the camp sets out, when they start in the day and they begin on their march, Aaron and his son shall go in, and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So it's not going to be available for everybody to gaze at. It's going to be covered because God is other. God is different. He must be treated uh, differently. He is distinct. And then they will lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. So there's an order to the way in which these claws that were part of the decoration of the inside of the tabernacle were to go on the ark. You didn't confuse things. It's very specific how this was to be put together. And they would insert the poles and carry it by these poles. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, 
We're told that the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And they were the ones who were to serve him, so not just anyone among the nation could be involved in this. It was only the tribe of Levi, and only a specific clan within the tribe of Levi were to carry the ark. Number 7-9, he did not give any to the sons of Kohath because theirs was the service of the holy object. So the descendants of Kohath were responsible for taking care of the furniture in the tabernacle itself, and they were to carry them on their shoulder. So there's a specific way to transport the ark. Now, I want to move us out of the Pentateuch then to the next episode, which is in Joshua chapter 3. This is the next time we see, um, we see the ark mentioned. And this is after the 40 years in the wilderness, after they have, uh, when they are on the verge of entering into the land that God has promised them. And the first barrier that they face is what? It's the Jordan River. Now, if you go to the Jordan River today, it just looks like some, you know, just some some small stream that's going by, and you can walk across it without any trouble. But remember two things. This is at pa- right after at, at Passover time. They've just celebrated Passover, so that means it's in the spring. That means that all of the snows up on Mount Hermon are melting, and all of that flood water is coming down and so that the Jordan would be at flood stage. Second, you don't have all of the uh, bleeding off of the water in the Jordan to provide irrigation for uh, Israel and for Jordan and all of that goes on today. It's almost dried up by the time it gets down to the Dead Sea. But at that time, it was a mighty river, and at flood stage, your life would be in jeopardy if you tried to cross the Jordan River. And so God gives them... Uh, specific instructions in Joshua chapter 3 on crossing over the Jordan. And in verse 10, we read, Joshua said, by this you shall know. See, they're going to set this up where the priests are going to lead the people across the Jordan. And this is a great act of faith and trust in God because they're going to be carrying the ark the way they're supposed to. The sons of Kohath, they've got it on their shoulders and they're going to walk into the Jordan River, and it's flowing past at a rapid rate, and they're going to step into the water, but their feet never actually hit the water. Because as they are stepping by faith, God is going to stop the water, and it will just form a wall to their to their right as they walk from east to west across the Jordan River. And so this is going to demonstrate again, give empirical data and testimony to the Israelites that the living God is among them. He's not some God of stone or wood. I want you to notice that because there were things similar to this that happened in pagan cultures, but it all had to do with their idols. So there's a polemic going on here uh, against these idolatrous religions. He's the living God, and he actually does things and uh, he's going to, just as he stops the waters of the Jordan, he can drive out the uh, various uh, Hittites and Hivites and Perizzites and Girgashites and uh, the Amorites and clear the way and give them victory. 
Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is crossing over ahead of you. The Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now, why do you suppose he says the Lord of all the earth? Because this brings up the fact that he's the Lord of the land, the land of Israel. This is the land that he's given him. He is the God of this land, and he is the God of creation. And so he is in control of what we would call nature or natural forces. And just as God can has created the waters and the floods and everything, God can still the flood. So they are to take one man from each of the tribes, and then that goes on into describing uh, some other things. It shall come to pass as soon as the souls of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters that come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from the Jordan to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. So this gives us this example. And then it goes on in verse 15. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows its banks all the days of harvest. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, which is further upstream, a city that is beside Zarethan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, that's toward the Dead Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And then lastly, in verse 17, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So you have three million people crossing at that point. So it, once the water stops, everything below it dries out. So they don't have to cross in a small section like even the width of this room. They can cross in a large section because it all miraculously dried out so that all three million can cross in a somewhat timely manner. Now I want you to turn over a couple of pages to Joshua chapter 6, and we'll see another episode uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. And this involves the conquest of of Jericho, starting in chapter 6. And Jericho, of course, is a Canaanite city that is the first city you would run into after you crossed over the Jordan. As you cross over the Jordan, you're down into the Jordan Valley. But as you look up, you can see... The land rising up uh, goes today. You see it going into the desert. Once it goes about a quarter of a mile or half a mile out of the Jordan River where it goes into the desert, it's very dry. And then it goes up into these high ridges and cliffs, which is uh, up beyond Jericho. And so Jericho was placed in a strategic location and watching over the fords of the Jordan at that particular location. And this is a place that needs to be Uh, captured strategically, but also the people need to be completely destroyed because God needs to purify the land of the paganism. So the Lord gives instructions that they'll march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. That'll take a while. We've got 600,000 men of war. So they all walk around. That's going to take most of the day. And seven priests, each carrying a ram's horn before the ark. So the ark leads the way. This is showing that God is the general. God is the one who's providing uh, the victory. And they 
then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. The priests blow the trumpets, and then the walls will come down. When they make a long blast of the ram's horn, then everybody is going to shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down. And then he orders them to take up the Ark of the Covenant and begin the walk. So here is an artist's depiction of the walls coming down. Uh, it's not archaeologically accurate because there were uh, slopes up and there were actually two different sets of walls so that when they fell, it was like two walls like this and they fall like that, creating a ramp up which the uh, Israelite soldiers could run. So that gives us an idea of the importance and centrality of the ark in Joshua. Now I want you to turn over to First Samuel. This is when we start getting closer to what is the immediate background for what we're seeing in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We go to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see one of the most resounding defeats that Israel experienced. This is a critical battle. This this would almost be akin to Britain um, uh, losing... uh, to to Germany, to Nazis in World War II, it is critical, and they will lose possession of the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told that that they come to battle, they meet at a, at a place called Aphek, that's where the Philistines will camp, and just opposite them, there's a place called Ebenezer. Ebenezer means the Lord is my helper, and um, uh, <clears throat> they will... Uh, the Israelites will meet, will camp there. And then uh, they have an initial engagement with the Philistines that descri- that's described in verse 2, where the Israelites are defeated and about 4,000 are killed by the Philistines. They're dejected. God has uh, not given them victory, which they supposed. And then they come up with this great idea. He says at the last half of the verse, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So a couple of things to note here is they're not submissive to God. That's the whole problem during this latter period of the judges. They Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and they're treating the ark as if it's a, a, a rabbit's foot, as if it's a good luck charm, and that if we just get the ark out here, then God's going to give us a victory. And God's going to show them that God isn't to be manipulated. God isn't to be played with. God isn't some good luck charm that if you wear a cross or you uh, sprinkle yourself with holy water or any of these other superstitious things that some Christians think about, that that doesn't mean anything. And that's just uh, very superficial. And having the ark in front doesn't guarantee that the Israelites will win. In fact, because they haven't submitted themselves to God and they're still living and thinking like pagans, God's not going to give them the victory. He's going to let himself be captured because he's still in control. Even if he's captured by the pagans, he hasn't, uh, he hasn't lost control. So the story goes that they go to Shiloh to get the ark And again, we see that the Ark is described as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. That's how it's described when we get to 2 Samuel 6. The Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh Tzabaoth, who dwells between or who is enthroned among the cherubim. It's that same title that gets picked up in 2 Samuel 
uh, chapter 6, verse 2. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, Pinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, these guys were just, you know, marginally worse, worse than pond scum, if you remember. They, they, they operated at the temple, but they were taking the offerings and sacrifices from people. They were uh, sexual abusers, and, and they would uh, force women to become virtually uh, temple prostitutes at the temple of Yahweh. So they're, they're about to get their uh, divine discipline here, and they are going to be defeated. And in verse 10, skipping down to verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. There are there are just thousands of of Israelites that are slaughtered by the Philistines, and the ark of God is taken. I mean, this is like losing at Dunkirk. It is just horrific. They um, they lose the ark of God. Uh, their good luck charm is taken, and. Uh, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, die. And then a messenger goes back, and uh, I think it's Phinehas's wife is about to give birth, and when she hears the news of what has happened, then she is going to give birth. And in verse, uh, in, uh, verse 22 of, of uh, chapter 4, she says... The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And Israel's just decimated. And for the next 20 years or so, they are just under the heel of the Philistines. So uh, the only positive thing for Israel is to have Samuel. And they will come back and they will defeat the Philistines at the second battle of Aphek. So in 1 Samuel 5.1, we're told the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, this is where it really gets funny. You remember the episode where they put God in the temple of Dagon to show that Dagon has, is superior to God. Then they come in the next morning, and Dagon is bowing down to the Ark of God. And then they set Dagon back up, and the next morning they come in, and his feet, Dagon's feet and hands are cut off, showing that he's impotent and that God is the one who's really, really in control. But what I wanted to show you on this map is, is the uh, geography here. Uh, here's Jerusalem down here in the lower right, and up above it, this is about maybe 12 miles from uh, Jerusalem to Sh- uh, Shiloh. This is where the ark was kept in the tabernacle with this defeat that comes from the Philistines here, the tabernacle, uh, pretty much gets overrun by the Philistines somewhere in this time. And the Ark was taken to battle at this battle, first battle of Aphek. And then you just follow this purple line, and it's taken down to Ashdod. And then after the episode with Dagon, uh, and, and then the funny little thing with the hemorrhoids, and they make little gold mice and gold tumors to placate God, then the Ashdodites say, we've got to get rid of this thing, and they send it over to, uh, to Gath, and it doesn't go much better for them at Gath, and they send it to Ekron, and pretty much it's like a hot potato, and the Philistines just want to get rid of it, so they put it on a cart, and they send it back to Israel. They put on it a, 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 a milk cow um, so that, that uh, if and God brings this milk cow all the way back, and she doesn't go back to her 
her calves to feed them, which is miraculous. So it shows God controls nature. And it comes to Beth Shemesh, and the Beth Shemites um, abuse it. They look on it as, wow, look at this. We found God. We're going to look at it, and we're going to, uh, and they're, they're going to have a party around there. But uh, because they did not treat it with respect, uh, there were uh, there was some judgment that came on it at that particular time. And in First Samuel six nineteen to twenty, we read, and God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of the people, uh, fifty thousand and seventy men. And the people were mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up? Uh, to whom shall go? Whom shall he go up from us? So the question they recognize: God's holy. You can't mess with him. You can't go look inside his box. You've got to stay away and treat God as God says he's going to be treated. Now that lesson is going to be forgotten. And David is going to learn it again uh, the hard way. And so in 1 Samuel 7, 1, we're told that the men of Kiriath-Jerim came to Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is still primarily pagan. It's Israelites. It's a mix of Canaanites and Philistines and, and some Israelites, and Kiriath-Jerim is as well. But this is where a righteous Levite by the name of Abinadab lives, and they take the ark into his house. And they consecrate his son, Eliezer, to keep the ark of the Lord. So he's a, he's a Levite, and he has a legitimate responsibility here, and he is going to be taking, taking care of the ark and watching over it. And remember, this occurs before the reign of Saul, which was 40 years and before, and David has already been uh, king in Hebron for seven and a half years. So this is at least probably 50 years, maybe 60 years that the ark is uh, taken care of in the house of Abinadab. And if uh, later episodes are, are to be uh, parallel, then we know that the house of Abinadab would have been blessed by God during this time uh, as it was later on. So that brings us to the beginning of chapter 6. And we, God is demonstrating in this section that he is a holy God, he is in control, and he is sufficient. Israel needs to learn this lesson. The Beth Shemites, Beth Shemeshites learned that lesson. And now David and Israel needs to learn that lesson. They treat God with a measure of respect, but not completely. And what we're going to see here is that when they do this, they're not conducting the transportation of the ark according to the law. And there is this level of, it's not a huge disrespect like the men of Beth Shemesh, but it's not perfect obedience. And as a result, there's going to be a death. Uzzah, one of those... Uh, who is responsible for the ark, uh, is going to be killed uh, and executed immediately by God because he touches the ark. And so this first section, the first 11 verses here, are God demonstrating who he is, that he is a righteous God, he's a holy God, he's in control, and he doesn't need any help. 
that even when those um, the oxen stumble and it looks like the ark is being jostled, God is not unstable. God can stabilize himself. He did, doesn't need any help. And that's a great lesson for us to learn is that even in salvation, as much that goes on, God doesn't need any help. God is sufficient to take care of us and solve our problems on his own. He solves the sin problem on his own. He solves other problems on his own. And he doesn't really need our assistance to do it. So let's go back to to, uh, verse 1. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And this takes us back to, he has the choice men, the New American Standard says chosen men, but that's not the best translation. The New King James says it's all the choice men. Now, there's a lot of debate. I didn't realize this about exactly how we should understand this term choice. Is this some elite troop? Is this the the SEALs, the special ops team? Are these the Green Berets of, of the Israelite army? Uh, the select ones, the choice ones, or is this term used of the whole army as being select? That's interesting, the debate that goes on over this. And in order to gain a little insight in this, uh, we need to go to the parallel passage, as I said, we'd be doing a lot in our study, in First Chronicles. Because remember, Chronicles is telling the story about David and his descendants from the post-exilic vantage point to remind the Jews after that have come back from the exile of who God is, what his plan is, and what his plan for for David is. It's, it's a tracing of the positive aspects in Judah of the uh, David and the outworking of the Davidic covenant. So in 1 Chronicles 13, 1, we read, Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. See, he doesn't just go out and select some sort of elite group of men. He starts by exercising good leadership and talking and counseling with his leaders and the officer corps and which is a good thing to do. He has good communication, and part of this would involve the planning. He's laying out what he wants to do. He wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and we this is God's throne. We need to treat it with respect. We need to lay out the, the ceremony, all of the pomp and circumstance. We need to get everything organized, and because this is our true king, we need to bring the military in because it's recognizing that they are serving uh, serving the Lord. And so he sits down and there's planning and there's um, organization that takes place here. And verse 2, And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and it is of the Lord, notice the emphasis there. He says it's, if it seems good to you, he wants to make sure they are on board. And if it is of the Lord, he has all through this section, I've been pointing out how he consistently, before any major decision, he prays. Before any major decision, he goes to the Lord to seek his counsel and advice. So he is, this is what he wants to do, but he's not going to do it if it's not of the Lord. 
He says, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in the land of Israel and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us. So they're going to set a date. Obviously, this doesn't work if you don't define when it's going to happen. They're going to set a date. They're going to go out and send word to everybody in the land, all the Jews, to come to Israel for this event. This is going to be huge. This is going to be an enormous number of people who are going to travel uh, several days, maybe maybe a week or more, to get from the farthest extent, from Dan to Beersheba, to get back to Jerusalem. And they're going to be there to line the road to do obeisance to their God, who is their king. And then David says, And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired of it since the days of Saul. So basically what this recognizes is since the early days of Saul, since the time of Saul, that the worship of God at the tabernacle just fell into sort of disrepair or disuse. And so they weren't uh, going there. You've got the ark is, is down there at Abinadab's house, and so it's virtually ignored. And so all of the assembly agreed that this was what they would do, and it was right in the eyes of all the people. So the people are all on board, and they want to recognize the Lord in this way and bring their true king into their capital city where he will be enthroned in. Eventually, the idea is that David's already thinking about a house for the Lord, but this has to be uh, put into place. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihar. Now, that's a Hebrew word that may be borrowed from Egyptian, but it's simply the river. Now, if you look it up, they'll say it's the Nile. But if you're careful in your study, you'll recognize that the southern border of Israel, the promised land, was the Wadi El Harish. It doesn't go as far as the Nile. It doesn't go down to the Suez. It stops about a third of the way down uh, the Sinai Peninsula to the Wadi El Arish, and then, and that's the southern end. So he's gathering all of Israel together from the river, the Wadi El Arish, to the entrance of Hamath. That's the beginning of Hamath. Hamath is a region that is north of Syria. Now, if you look at a map of all the lands that God promised to is to uh, to Abraham. That goes all the way up to the Euphrates on the north side of Syria, all the way down to the Wadi El Arish. So, so what David is doing here is he's saying, we're going to send out messengers to every Israelite who's living within the boundaries of the land God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for the preparation of bringing the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And so they, David and all Israel went up to Baala, that is Kiriath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord who dwells between the cherubim where his name is proclaimed. So that's an even fuller title than we have in Second Samuel 2, which simply refers to it as the, uh, the ark of God whose name is called by the name Yahweh Sabaoth who dwells between the cherubs. So David arose and he goes up with all of the people and we're told in verse 3 that they placed the ark of God on a new cart. 
that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Okay, so what do we have going on here? They're going to transport the ark on a cart. Is that right or wrong? Wrong. So they're making mistakes. Now, they're, they're, they're not going to carry it on poles on their shoulders as they were supposed to. And they're, um, uh, so in verse 2, they, let me see here. Okay, we have, uh, <clears throat> this takes us back to kiriath Jerim that the ark remained in kiriath Jerim a long time. It was there, uh, here it says it was there for 20, 20 years. And uh, there's textual corruption on this. It's there through the whole reign of Saul. So that's, but there's, when it says, and Saul reigned over Israel for 40 years, that's from the Septuagint. There's a blank in the, in the Masoretic text. So there's a lot of debate on those, those numbers, but as to what, what the accuracy is there. So it's there. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Verse 3, they bring it up. Uh, in the new, this new cart, here's a picture portraying them bringing it by, via this cart. And just a reminder of all the instructions God gave about how he's going to be transported. First of all, the poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Exodus 25:15. the poles were always to be there. Then in Numbers 4, uh, 5 through 15, we read, when the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his son shall come. They shall take down the covering veil, cover the ark. Then they shall put the covering of badger skins or porpoise skins. Uh, we're not really sure what that animal is. And spread over that a cloth entirely of blue. And they shall insert its poles. When Aaron and his sons finish covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. They have to carry it on their shoulders, which is what we saw in Numbers 7, 9. Then we learn from 1 Chronicles 15 that the problem that develops is because they didn't move the ark correctly. For because you did not do it right the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel, and the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. In other words, God wants to be worshipped according to precise statements in Scripture. He defines worship. We don't. It's not about how we feel. It's about what God says and what God teaches. And this is a problem we have today because we live in a world where we have a very narcissistic culture that, that wants to define things in terms of how it makes us feel. And it's not about how we feel. It's about how God feels. It's what God says. And it's about his righteousness. So verse 4, we're told they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God. Ahio goes before the ark. And then in verse 5, we see the pomp and circumstance. David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord. Music is, a, David is the first one to really introduce and develop music as part of the corporate worship of Israel. And they play music before the Lord. Now, this isn't some little quartet. 
they have a, they have, they, it's not going to be as large of an orchestra as they develop later on, but the Levites had a very large orchestra. They would have, you know, maybe one or two hundred uh, people playing these various instruments. It's organized. It um, is very structured. We look at the psalms that were sung. They all fit specific literary patterns. And so they're not just free verse. They're not just people uh, just spouting off off the top of their head whatever comes to mind. But it is very well thought out, organized, and structured. And the music would be the same thing. The music would have to fit the mood and the tone of the words that are being sung. They, sung. they have to go together. Uh, this was something that was planned. It was something that was rehearsed. We think about things like the um, wedding, uh, uh, royalty weddings that we've observed with uh, uh, Prince Charles and Princess Diana. We think of the other other royal weddings that we've seen. Everything is planned down to the minutest detail, and that's the way this would have been. God isn't a God of just spontaneous, oh, well, let's go do this. He has uh, plans and structure. And so there were also probably singers who accompanied the, uh, that were accompanied by the music, and all the details are worked out. They had uh, different kinds of instruments of fir wood, which probably refers to lyres, harps, uh, str- various stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. Now, how many of y'all ever played a sistrum? It's like a castanet, okay, or something that you would shake, something that it's a percussion instrument. And so they, they, it had order. It wasn't just like, you know, some blonde bimbo up there, which you get in a lot of these uh, Christian choruses. You always have the blonde. I had one one time, and it, way back, had, had, she had operatic training in the background and everything. And we did contemporary music when I first went to that church. It didn't last long, but we had, we had all of that, and that's what people apparently come for is the entertainment. Uh, that's not what they were doing. This was something quite different. Uh, so they have, um, have an orchestra that's well-planned, and then they, as they're approaching, they came to uh, Nahon's threshing floor. And at this point, the ground apparently is rather rough. And as a result of that, the cart goes over a bump. And the result is that the ark is jostled. And Uzzah puts out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. So he's not supposed to do that. He thinks God needs to be stabilized. God can't protect himself. It shows a low view of God. And his, you know, what's interesting here is David gets so angry after this. And one wonders, why does David get so angry? And the suggestion is, and of course that's all it can be as a suggestion, is maybe David had given him some sort of instruction to make sure everything gets okay or whatever. But Dave, David's reaction is that he, he just wants to set the ark aside and not touch God or deal with it anymore for a while. He is very angry about this whole thing. And this whole episode also kind of smacks of what would happen in pagan religions. 
Isaiah has a couple of passages about idols. Isaiah 41, 7. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. So this is talking about the construction of an idol. You have the various craftsmen. They're smoothing out all of the metal, all the details, making it just right. And then they're going to fasten it with pegs so that it can be fastened down and not tip over. In Isaiah 46.1, talking about the um, Bel, the Babylonian god, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. So this sort of echoes what's been going on with transporting the ark. They're influenced by how the pagan cultures did it, not by how the word of God defined it. And that's still a problem today. Too many Christians are influenced by the world around us. That's how we do music, how we do worship. We let the world influence us rather than doing things in order and discipline and elevating the quality of our music the, the, and the, the, the profundity of our words. The words today in most of these, if not all of these contemporary courses, are really shallow. You take, and, and as I've taught on this before, if you remember, you take the great hymns. Now, not all hymns are great, but the great hymns of the faith that have lasted centuries you take those words and read them and then compare those to the words in contemporary courses and and you see that there's just a shallowness and a superficiality to what's going on in contemporary music. And that's because the Christians aren't being fed the Word of God deeply enough or taught deeply enough and their their Christian lives are shallow. I remember one time Ed Heinsohn, who was at the time he was the assistant to Jerry Falwell, He's a he's a um, uh, minister, he's an independent Baptist in Southern Baptist circles. And one time he told me, he said, he said, Robbie, you've got to understand Southern Baptists are wonderful people, but their theology is a mile wide and an inch deep, and they think it's a mile deep and an inch wide. We're superficial today. I think even in our circles there's superficiality because that's the influence of the culture. And we, the only thing that changes that is for people to really focus and study personally and submit to the Word of God. So Uzzah is going to try to stabilize God, and the result is the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. God is serious. This is the Old Testament version of what happens to Ananias and Sapphira, and I think it's in Acts Acts uh, 6, when they lie to the Holy Spirit. God doesn't do this all the time, but when there is a transition to a new era, God wants to make certain things, teach certain lessons very profoundly. And that's what he does here. And and they're not going to forget it. David becomes angry because of the, the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he calls the name of the place Perez Uzzah. That Perez means outbreak or God breaking forth. Uh, Perez Uzzah. Uh, to that day. And then verse 9 tells us this anger uh, that David has doesn't go away immediately. He's afraid of the Lord that day. 
And he says, how can the, work, can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can I do this? He is mystified. Why? He hasn't really looked at the law, and so he hasn't transported the ark the way he should. So he doesn't transport the ark. Um, he leaves it there in the home of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He's from Gath. Remember Goliath from Gath? That's a Gittite. And so Obed-Edom is a Gittite. He's, a, he's from Gath. He's a Philistine, but he is a believer. He has be, inter, become a proselyte to Israel. And so he takes the uh, Ark of the Covenant. He's not a Levite, okay? He takes the Ark of the Covenant, but God is going to bless him in many ways. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So in many ways, there's a, there's a personal blessing of happiness and joy in the family. There's productivity to his crops and his business. And everything goes well for Obed-Edom for those three months before David gets right with the Lord and realizes how he's supposed to transport the ark. And we'll come back to that next time. Father, thank you for uh, this study. Uh, make us help us to realize that we are to worship you according to your standard, that this is a, a high and holy calling. This is serious, what we do. It is not something to be taken lightly. It is not something that we should treat in a familiar manner. But this is something that demands uh, objective and clear thinking. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with that as we think about you in light of what we learn in this episode. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.